Well, this morning, being that it's Christmas, you can count on two things. Number one, we're going to look at Luke. Number two, the pastor is going to try and look Christmassy. So, got my tie on. There we go. Didn't want to go over the top, though, so I left my Looney Tunes one at home. Um, but the, the whole Christmas story is, is really interesting. We have what the Bible says about the birth of Jesus, and then, and then we have all the rest of the, the stuff, the traditions, uh, the stories, uh, the things that, w- that we've kind of added to this whole uh, idea of Christmas and, and Jesus coming as a little baby. And I don't want to be too much of a Grinch this morning, um, but I do want to just look at what the Bible uh, actually says about this story of, of Jesus coming and, and kind of, you know, compare it to some of our, our common ideas of of what Christmas is, is about. And, and I have to admit that, um, you know, as I was studying some of this, these things, I was like, no, it was a stable. It had to have been a stable. But then you start reading and you go, well, okay, maybe it wasn't actually a stable that he was born in. And there are other things like that that I'm just... When I think about Christmas, I have these, these certain ideas and images that pop into my head, and um, they're not always what actually happened. So I want to look at a couple of those things from, from the start of Luke, and, and actually where I want to start is with what I typically uh, kind of gloss over. The first couple of verses in Luke chapter 2. Look back there at at Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Now, I tend to, uh, to read those verses and just blank-mindedly read them. Like, I don't really think about what I'm reading. I know there's some guys with long names that are hard to pronounce, and I just kind of, okay, whatever, let's get to the baby. But here's one of those things where we should really stop and consider what these first three verses are saying. Uh, Here's the reason why. These first three verses and those names that are mentioned are really the anchor for this whole account of Jesus' birth. Without those names and and events being mentioned, um, this whole account of of Jesus is just kind of out there, like a baby was born. Oh, how nice. But then when you get specific, and Luke likes to get specific, and he says, well, this all happened while Caesar Augustus was ruling. And in fact, it was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Then you have something. Now, what I mean by that is these guys are are historical figures who you can look up in other methods. 
I mean, you can read about them here in the Bible, but there's a lot known about these guys in just world history in general. There are other manuscripts, ancient manuscripts, that talk about Caesar Augustus and all the things that he did. There are things that mention Quirinius. There, there are accounts of censuses being taken. And all of this is real, true history. And the thing is, a lot of people in this world think of cute little baby Jesus as a story. They don't think it's real. They go, oh, well, that's nice. Yeah, those Christians, they have their little traditions about Jesus, but it's not, it's not real. It's not what really happened. But here we have Luke starting out this account by just grounding us in the timeline of history and saying, this actually happened, and here is when it happened. When Caesar Augustus, Caesar Augustus was in charge and while Quirinius was there and it was during the time of the census. And that like pinpoints for us that, hey, this isn't just some guy telling a story. He is actually giving an account of what happened. And that is so important because, um, you know, even for me, having grown up in, in the church and believing that this is a true story, sometimes I, I get caught up in, in all the, the trappings of Christmas and, and I think about Jesus' birth as if it is just a story. But it's not. It's real. It's history. It's there. You can look these guys up. And you can know that this is when Jesus was born. Now, having said that, there are, uh, there are different people who would, who would still argue against some of the things that are said here. But if you look at uh, the purpose for Luke writing this account of the gospel, I think it's interesting because these first verses fit really well with Luke's purpose. If Turn back a couple pages to Luke chapter 1 verse 1. And Luke says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Luke is starting out and he's saying, look, I've studied this. I've talked to eyewitnesses. I witnessed a lot of this stuff. And I'm going to write this down in chronological order so that you know what happened. So that you can base your faith on these facts. And that's exactly what he's doing here in the first couple of verses. He's laying out the facts. Somewhat unrelated to this, but kind of related. I, I was watching a video this last week about uh, biblical archaeology. And the, the guy who is speaking, his name is uh, Dr. Adam Francisco. And he was talking about the Apostles' Creed and how there's a really 
interesting line in the Apostles' Creed. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. It's, a, it's an ancient creed that the church would, would uh, repeat, and it basically gave some, uh, some good theology. Uh, but it starts out, it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Stop. That little phrase there, suffered under Pontius Pilate. It's kind of the same thing that Luke is doing. Here's a name of a guy who um, you should be able to find, right? Pontius Pilate. Well, interesting thing is that for a long time, this was a key passage for, uh, or a key thing for naysayers to come to. And they would say, well, you know, your Apostles' Creed, the Bible, where it talks about Pontius Pilate, there was never any guy named Pontius Pilate. You know what? For a long time, there was no historical record of a guy named Pontius Pilate other than in the Bible. Until 1960. In 1960, they were doing an archaeological dig somewhere. They, they came across a section of a building, and lo and behold, there's a plaque on the building that is dedicating the building to Pontius Pilate. And the building dates back to the first century and it's authentic and it's real. And here is Pontius Pilate. And that, that stone that has his name, it's called the Pilate Stone. And it, it's, it was a big archeological find. Why? Because now all those people who say, oh, you Christians, you just make this stuff up. Can they say that anymore? No, <laughs> because he's a real guy and, and everything was correct. And in a lot of ways, um, what, what that Pilate stone did for the naysayers who, who had their doubts about Pontius Pilate, this is what Luke is, is doing here with the birth of Jesus. He, he's setting the stage and he's saying, this is real. And to add to that, you consider that him being so specific, if there were, you know, if this were made up, and there were people who disagreed with this. When he wrote it down, they could have easily said, hey, you're wrong. It wasn't this guy. It wasn't this time. It wasn't that. But guess what? Nobody did that. It was accepted as truth by everybody around. So, truth. Um, it wasn't until, you know, hundreds of years later that people started got getting skeptical about these things that, that were written. So all of that just to say, those few verses that, that I tend to skip over at the very beginning, they're important. And, and we, need to, we need to consider those things. Now, moving on in this, this account of, of Jesus and his birth, um, we get to the meat of, of what we usually focus on during Christmas time. The little baby in a manger, in a stable, the, uh, the shepherds who come to visit, and, and all that goes along with that. And, you know, one thing that is, is interesting about this is that um, Joseph kind of, people are hard on Joseph. 
I mean, here you got this guy who has a pregnant wife, right? And he waits till the last minute to book his trip to Bethlehem. And then they're like hurrying to get to Bethlehem. He didn't go on the internet. He didn't, you know, reserve a hotel. He just shows up at Bethlehem. They're going from door to door, knocking and saying, no, please, you know, let us in. And there's all the hotel sixes are, are booked. And they finally come to, you know, one hotel or one inn. And the guy's like, well, look, all our rooms are full but he has compassion on them. He's gracious. And he says, tell you what, you can stay in the stable out back. And it's, you know, it's good because she's having contractions right there as, as he's talking to her. And so they hurry up and they get back there and boom, out comes the baby. And then the shepherds come and that's how it happens, right? And you got Joseph, this doofus who let his wife have a baby in a stable well, is that really what it says? Shall we read some verses? Let's see here. Um, look at chapter 2, verse 6. While they were there in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her, Mary, to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. That's what it says. Not much, right? So where do we get all these ideas? Well, that we want to fill in the gaps. And so over time and over history, we've, we've filled in the gaps and it's become this, this story that isn't quite what is talked about here. Number one, verse six, while they were there. So... I have, and maybe you have this idea that this is like last minute, like hurry up and get to Bethlehem because that baby's coming. But that's not really what it says. It says while they were at Bethlehem, implying they're, they're already there. You know, they've been there. And then the time comes for her to have the baby. How long were they there? We don't know. But... I don't think that, that that picture of them rushing is, is quite accurate to what it says. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. So they're there, right? Well, yeah, but, you know, the whole stable thing. And I mean, he really should have called ahead and got reservations, right? Well, look at verse 7. It says, she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, there are two things about this verse. Number one, at the very end when it says in, it's probably a, a bad translation. And number two, we assume that the only place a manger would be or a feeding trough is in a stable or a barn, right? Well, let's think about it. Um, actually, back in the time when Jesus was born, it was fairly common, especially in a, uh, in a city like Bethlehem that, that was, you know, had all kinds of shepherds and grasslands around it and stuff. It was fairly common 
for a house um, to have two levels and the upper level would be uh, kind of a, a nicer place. The bottom level would be where, you know, most of life happened. And during the night, your little baby lambs or maybe your wounded animal or just your prized goat that's won trophies at the fair, you would bring them in. And they would spend the night downstairs and you would have a trough, a manger, something there for them to eat. So they were welcomed, animals were welcomed into houses. Um, now I mentioned there being two levels because that word at the end of that verse that we translate in, I'm going to mess up the proper pronunciation of this, but it's the Greek word katalima, and it's used three times in the New Testament. One here, one once it's used in Mark 14, 14, and it's used again in Luke chapter 22, verse 11. Now, in those other two spots, um, guess what the, the circumstances are? It involves Jesus again, but it's the end of his life, and he is sending the disciples to do something. They're supposed to go find a Catalima. They're supposed to find a guest room or an upper room for them to have a meal in. This is the word that is the upper room where Jesus had his last supper with the disciples. It was the guest room of a house. Not necessarily a Motel 6, which is what, you know, again, just through translation and history, we, we get this idea that, um, that they went to a motel, the motel was full, so they went to the stable out back. But it's like, it's not there. <laughs> That's been filled in. Um, and another interesting thing is we have the, this word here translated in, um, referred to, you know, an upper room or a, a guest room, but also there, there is a word that refers more to like an official hotel. And Luke uses that word later on in the book of Luke to describe something else. Uh, when he's uh, talking about the, the parable of the Good Samaritan and how the Good Samaritan takes the guy who was beaten up and he puts him up in a hotel or an inn, like he uses the word uh, pandakion for that. That was the hotel word. And that's what he talks about with the Good Samaritan. And he puts up the guy in the hotel and he asks the hotel keeper or the innkeeper to take care of that guy. Totally different words than what he's using here. So, you know, I just put that out there because, well, what's this? It's a little stable, right? And, and that's how we picture it, like little baby Jesus in the stable and hay and there's sheep. And I, like I said, I'm not trying to be a Grinch. I'm not saying that we should, after the service, come tear this down and burn it. Uh, but it's like, there are so many things uh, about this Christmas story that, uh, that have just been filled in over time. And, 
maybe aren't correct. And Middle Eastern culture in that time was very um, family-oriented, very uh, guest-oriented. Um, and typically, if people were traveling around, they would go into a town and people would just, they would let travelers stay in their house. They would invite them into their house, into their upper room, their guest room, and let them stay there. So at this time, Bethlehem was full because of the census, um, but it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that, that they were trying to find a hotel. Maybe they were even with family because they, that was their home city. But the upper room was full, so Mary and Joseph were downstairs, and when she had the baby, there was a trough there with some clean hay, put the baby in the trough. And it's just, you know, it kind of makes sense. It's different than what we typically picture, but it's all, you know, I kind of think that that's a more accurate picture of maybe what, what actually happened. Now, but what about the whole innkeeper thing? I mean, that's like in a lot of our stories, we have this benevolent innkeeper who has mercy on them and but he's not there. <laughs> you know where you do find an innkeeper? The same place that you find the word for hotel <laughs> in the story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan asks the innkeeper to take care of the wounded guy. Like we see an innkeeper there, we don't see an innkeeper here in Luke 2. Now we can... Uh, we could go on with this. Um, thankfully, the wise men aren't mentioned in Luke 2 because, oh boy, uh, there's, a, there's a lot that goes on with, with the wise men, like the three wise men. Uh, well, maybe, maybe not. We don't know how many there were. Uh, their names, uh, Belteshar and all this stuff, that's, it, was that really their names? Well, no. I, we don't know. That was made up. Um, what do we know about the Magi? Were they, were they kings? Were they, you know, some sort of uh, astrologers? Were they, what were they? It's just, eh, I don't know. We know there were three gifts that they brought, which is why we traditionally say there were three of them. You know, and there's, there's all this stuff that we build up around this that may or may not be true. Johnny, this... Thursday is going to talk about the shepherds, so I'm, I'm not going to talk about shepherds because I don't want to steal his thunder. Um, you should all come to the, the Christmas Eve service and, and hear more about them. But there, you know, as, as you work through this, this account of, of the story of Christmas, um, things aren't always as they seem to be. But here's the thing. Just like I could get caught up in uh, telling the true story of Christmas and busting all these myths and, you know, giving you the truth about this. You know what the, the shame in that would be? And I would make Christmas all about the truth, the true facts of what really happened and exploding your, your ideas of, you know, the the stable and the innkeeper and all this kind of stuff. And 
I think it's good that we, uh, that we know the truth about those things and that we think correctly about them, but that's not the real heart of the Christmas story. So I want to kind of move on and say, we need to think correctly about these things, but there's a bigger picture here. Christmas isn't about how many wise men there were, and it's not about exactly what kind of stable Jesus, you know, was born and laid in. What is it about? Well, we've been working up to this in, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Pastor Jeff has, been, has preached a couple of messages. Uh, two weeks ago, he was, he was taking a look at, at Genesis chapter 3. And really trying to establish the fact that, that there is a need for Christmas. Do you remember what that need is? In Genesis chapter 3, mankind falls. Falls into sin. And from that time forward, we are broken and sinful and in need of somebody to come and make things right again to provide a way for, for us sinful humans to be in a relationship with a holy God. And in Genesis chapter 3, God makes a promise. He says, one day there's going to be this person who's going to come and he's going to crush the head of Satan, the foe. And he's going he's gonna to make things... <laughs> good again. And that, in a big way, is what Christmas is about. That need for holiness, that need for somebody to make things right, is fulfilled in Christmas. Last week, Jeff was talking about Isaiah chapter 9 and was looking at some of the prophecy regarding the Messiah. And you know, he was, uh, started out just by talking about how we, we hate to wait for things. And that's so true. And, and there was this whole period of history where, where the Jews were just waiting and waiting. And they would get, they had Genesis 3. And then later on, they had the, the promises in Isaiah. And they had other prophecies about the Messiah. And it was just like, this tension and this excitement was building, like, come on, Messiah, get here. And in Christmas, he comes. It's the moment that they've been waiting for. And it's here in a little baby. And that is really, you know, the heart of Christmas. And the details are, are good to know, but man, we have to remember the true, uh, the true reason that Christmas is important. Let's look a, a little bit closer at, at Genesis chapter 3. I've already said this, but there was a promise made that, that the seed of the woman would come and would crush Satan, would, uh, would make things right. And one of the ways that you can tell that this was a really important event the birth of Jesus Christ. One of the ways that you can tell that it was important 
is by the opposition that Satan put up. Now, this is another part of the whole Christmas story that sometimes we, we skip over. And it's back in Matthew. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 2, there's a story that's, or a part of this account that's not very pleasant to think about. The Magi come, they come to this evil guy named Herod, and then they're warned not to go back to Herod. And how does Herod respond? If you look at Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 13, it says, When they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. Now, let's just pause there. Do you sense the urgency here? This isn't, hey, Joseph, uh, tomorrow, start packing up and, you know, make arrangements and then within the week, head for Egypt. It's now, go. Now, in the middle of the night, get up and go. Why? Because something bad, real bad, was going to happen. Let's, let's read on. Verse 15. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fill, fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. All right. So, do any of you have a child, two or younger? Or maybe a nephew or a grandchild, two years old or younger? Can you imagine the mayor of Washington making a decree? All boys, two years old and younger, we're going to kill them. And it comes out on the, the nightly news, uh, but they've been, you know, they've been planning this. And so they, it comes out and people start to go, what? What in the world? And then there's a knock at the door. And there's somebody there who is ready and willing to carry out that order. That's horrible. It's, it's traumatic. It's evil. But it's what happened because Satan realized something. The guy who's going to crush his head had been born. And he was not happy about that. And, and so he did everything possible. He used this evil man, Herod, to try and stop it. It didn't work. But, you know, as I said, 
the significance of Jesus' birth, I think partly can be seen in the way that Satan responds. He's going all out. He's using all means necessary to try and get rid of this baby. Because this baby would grow up and would die on the cross to forgive our sins. When John the Baptist sees Jesus in John 1.29, he says this, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This baby was that man. And, and it happened on Christmas while Caesar Augustus was ruling in the time of Quirinius. And that's what we should be celebrating. The Savior is here. He came on that day. If you uh, can maybe picture like taking all the information about the Messiah from the Old Testament and making a, a checklist. You know what the first check mark is? Born. Check. And all the other stuff that, that the Messiah was going to accomplish couldn't be accomplished until that first check mark. And so all the hopes and all the dreams and all the uh, longing for the Messiah and for uh, true forgiveness of sins all comes down to that one little check mark. And on Christmas, check. He's born. Hallelujah, right? Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, Pastor Jeff talked about this last week, but further information about who this, this Messiah was going to be. And like I said earlier, this was, this was such a, a, a longed for thing in, in the Jewish mind. Come Lord Jesus. Well, they didn't know his name. Come Lord, come Messiah. Like they, they were waiting for this to happen. And there was all kinds of stuff tied up in this. There was political oppression. There was uh, all sorts of things that, that they were looking for in the Messiah. And, and Christmas is the day that he comes. So for, you know, the Jewish mind, like Messiah is here. Wow. The Savior has come. That was a huge thing. Um, I recently watched a movie, and you may or may not be able to uh, relate to this. Have many of you seen the uh, Lord of the Rings movies? Well, if you're not a Lord of the Rings fan, I realize that I just sound like a total nerd when I'm trying to relay this story. But um, I, I was watching the, the second movie of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's um, called The Two Towers. And there's this huge epic battle that happens kind of towards the end of the movie. It takes up quite a bit of time. 
um, and it's the Battle of Helm's Deep. And, and basically, you have the evil, nasty uh, orcs. Actually, I was corrected. It's the Uruk-hai, which are technically different than orcs. But they're evil, and they're gross. And they're, they're coming to attack uh, the people who, are, who have held up in, in this place called Helm's Deep. And, and this battle just rages, and it's nighttime, and these orcs are nasty, evil things, and they have... Uh, they manage to breach the wall, and uh, they're coming in, and the, the men, and actually there are elves there too, the men and the elves are, are retreating back and back, and they keep on falling back and falling back and falling back, and the orcs keep coming and coming and coming, and they get to where it's just a few of them left. And there's a, a character named Aragorn, and he, he's talking to uh, another guy and he remembers something. See, before all this happened, there was a wizard. <laughs> Such a nerd. Uh, <laughs> but there was this wizard named Gandalf who had told Aragorn on the fifth day in the morning, look to the east. And as Aragorn is, is hunkered down and it's just looking hopeless and, and you see like this little spark in his eye because he realizes it's morning and it's the fifth day. And you just, you just see courage well up in him and he gathers the men and they get on their horses and they go charging out through the, the gate of this, this place where they are, and they're just, you know, swinging and hacking orcs and all this stuff, and it's really cool. Um, and, uh, but it's still, it's just a few of them against an innumerable horde of evil, but then he looks up to the east, and guess who's there? It's Gandalf. And he comes over this hill, and it's not just Gandalf, but behind him is this whole army on horseback, and the cavalry is here. And they come rushing down, and all the orcs, you know, look up, and they panic. And as they're rushing down the hill, the sun comes up, and it just blinds them, and it's really thematic and awesome. <laughs> and, and as you're watching that, you just go, yes! Because... The Savior was there, and evil was conquered. And, and that you could see the, the hope that was there because of that promise just come alive. And this is what Christmas is about. <laughs> like, the Savior is here. He's going to defeat the enemy. He's going to crush him. And he's going to give us hope. And he's going to give us a future. And wow. <laughs> That's exciting. However, <laughs> we get caught up in, oh, I got to buy this guy a present. And oh, man, I got to make this and I got to do that. And all those things are good in their own way. 
but we can't lose that. And if we do, ah, oh, that's sad. Now, there are some, some interesting things about <laughs> the Savior coming because he didn't necessarily come as the Jews expected him to. They saw all the promises in Isaiah 9 that he would come and he would rule, he would govern, and they kind of missed Isaiah 53, which says this, Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a shoot out of, out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And there, there was this expectation that the Messiah would come and rule when he came to die. But... Guess what? He's coming again. And when he comes again, we see from the New Testament, from reading Revelation, this time, he's coming to rule. And he's taking care of business like it's never been done before. I was... Uh, kind of preparing for the, the memorial that's coming up for Harriet. And I was looking at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. If we believe that this little baby came, was born, and grew up, and died, and rose again, even so, by the power of God, he's coming again. And so, Christmas is about the fact that Jesus came the first time, but man, you and I, 
are, are kind of still in that waiting game in a lot of ways. We have the ability to look back and see that, that Jesus conquered death on the cross. And yet, bad things still happen in this life. Have you noticed? This world is not how it should be. Have you noticed? And does it make you long for the Savior to come back again? It was amazing when he came the first time. But he's not done. He's coming again. So Christmas should be our opportunity to look back and be amazed at what, what God did through Christ coming as a little baby. But also, it should spur us on to, to think about the fact that he's coming again. And all those things that didn't happen the first time are going to happen the second time. And I don't know about you, but that's, that's exciting. <laughs> that's something to, to celebrate. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are coming again. Thank you that you came in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago to, to start the process of, of making things right again. And we thank you that, um, that through faith in your son that we can have forgiveness of sins, that we can say with confidence that, that all of our iniquity, all of the bad things about us have been nailed to the cross and have been washed away by Jesus' blood. We praise you for that. And Lord, we realize that, that you're not quite done, that Jesus is coming again. And the confidence that we have in the fact that he came the first time should be our, the same confidence that he's going to return. And Lord, we should be uh, just eager for that to happen. Lord, would you stir our hearts and our minds during this, this Christmas time to, to not only think about your first coming and how amazing that was, but to, to long for your second coming. Lord, you are good beyond our, our wildest imagination. You're merciful and loving. We thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for this Christmas time where we can remember and look forward. We just commit this week to you in Jesus' name. Amen.